Amen. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Thessalonians. We are back in our study going through these two letters, two of the earliest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. We are now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read a, uh, a lengthy passage because that's um, where we are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But as you're turning there, I again remind you of what Kicker said a few moments ago, uh, talking about transitions. Sonia Starkey has transitioned into the presence of the Lord we will celebrate her life and her home going this coming Tuesday right here uh, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So please um, um, make plans to be there. And then another transition, uh, Shannon and Joel Schultz. Where are you guys? Are you right there? You moved up. You usually sit further back. Easy to find. Joel and Shannon, uh, after being with us for several years, uh, are moving and they've been an integral part, not only of the church, but of the uh, Sunday school class, the adult Bible fellowship class that I teach. And um, so they're moving to Florida. We're sending missionaries to Florida, okay? <laughs> All right, they need it. And uh, Zoe is, uh, you're going to be back in the fall, but you're going with them to begin with. Robin and Eliza, you guys are going with them. We love you guys. We'll miss you. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I love the people of this church and when people come and they get plugged in and um, it's just a good thing to see. So we will pray for you as you go. They're leaving first thing tomorrow morning and so we'll need to pray for them. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him. Now that's reminiscent of the first Thessalonians chapter 4 passage, the snatching up, the rapture of the saints. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved." Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false 
in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, we give ourselves to you now to study this incredible passage of Scripture. Help us to make sense of it enough to know what we need to do in light of it. There, there are things that are still hidden from our sight, Lord, and, and certainly this is one of those passages where there are things that are clear, but there are many things that are not. Help us to work through those. And from the things that are clear as to what we are to do, how we are to respond, we pray that you give us grace to do it. You always do. And so we thank you for that. We pray for uh, Marvin. Already we've prayed for him and for his family and the home going of dear sweet Sonia. We thank you that you are, are, are already ministering to his family, and we pray that as we come together to celebrate her life, that it be a great, uh, a glorious time, giving glory to you, Lord, but honoring her in the appropriate way. And then, Father, for the Schultz family, we pray for them as they make uh, their way to Florida and begin a new season of life, a new chapter. And, Lord, you're, you're moving your people. We know that. And while we, we are saddened, uh, by the inevitable separation that happens when people move or even move churches or, or whatever the case may be. Lord, we truly are excited for the next thing. As long as those um, like the Schultz are walking in obedience to you. And so we thank you and praise you that we can pray these things. And now lead us as we study. I need your help. We all need your help. We thank you that you will give it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this may be a stretch, but I want you to imagine for a minute that you are in a little house church. You are part of the church, the church, the only church in a town called Thessalonica. And things have happened, events have happened, people have come in. They've taught certain things. They've posed as apostles. They've presented letters even as if they are apostles. And you feel upset. You feel overwhelmed because the false teachers have basically, basically, here's what they've told you. And I'm combining several things here. They've told you that the Lord Jesus has already returned, that the day of the Lord has come. But you remember something from Paul's first letter, that he said he was going to come to gather up the saints. He said he was going to come, and he was going to judge the wicked, but you're still here. And the wicked are still all around you. Not only that, from the first letter, you remember you're worried about your loved ones who have died. You see people in the church, we'll find this out later on in this study of 2 Thessalonians, who are just making trouble. They are a meddling nuisance. I know that's hard for you to believe that that actually happens in the church, but there are people that are like that. They're busybodies. They're causing dissension. There's also intense persecution from the outside, not only Jews, but also your own countrymen, and they're coming after you. And then this letter from Paul comes. Here's what you need to know from this letter and, and the, the real application. I want you to listen 
for it. It's going to come. I'm going to preview it, and then we're going to come back to it at the end because it's not, the real application of today is not to try to figure out the details of Christ's second coming. I promise you, I've studied this enough to know that we, we can read different people and they are all over the map. So I assure you that I'm not going to try to answer all of your questions. And Paul didn't try to answer all of their questions, but what he wanted to do is the same thing that I want to do, is to bring you hope and to bring you peace. So... Let's wrap together some of the things that he said. He's talking about a particular event, all right? Now, I've read through this, and I've reread, and I've reread. In my Bible, if you were to look at it, you'd find it marked, and, and I have a, a, a reference marked to each, each mention of the coming of the Lord. And various terms are used. And as I read this and then I read the commentaries and I listen to people who, who teach about this, there are those who differentiate between these different terms. The, for example, the day of the Lord or that day or the reference to when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire and, and many others. I truly see those as referencing the same basic event, when the Lord comes. Let me show you uh, uh, another passage of Scripture, 2 Thessalonians, that's the book we're in, and let's slide back into chapter 1. And if you'll remember, Paul talked about this earlier to them. He talked about in that event, what, whatever it is, when the Lord returns, when He comes back, when He is revealed, that day, the day of the Lord, He's going to do something. And this is why they were confused and they were upset, thinking that that day had already come. He said, God considers it just to do two things, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's one of the things that God, that Christ will do when He comes again. Later on, I don't think it's in this particular little section, but it says He's going to mete out vengeance on those people. But then He's going to do something else in that coming. He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. So they knew that the Lord was going to do two things, basically. They knew that at His coming, He was going to give them relief from the affliction that they were currently under, and He was going to repay those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. And if the Lord Jesus has already come back, their thinking is, then why haven't those two things happened? And that's why he wrote these 12 verses that I read for you 
just a few moments ago. Let's look at them. You see the outline? I, I've tried to put it down uh, in, in, in a fashion where we can just walk through these entire 12 verses. Now, I know that some of you who have been around for my preaching realize that I can usually not get past three or four verses, and you're thinking, how in the world is he going to do that? and still get us out on time. Well, we're going to, to, to put these together, and we're going to walk through those and, and, and look and see what he says. Now, here's the first thing that he says, don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Why? Because Christ's second coming, okay, now let's stop right here. I, I am, and, and as you go through this, I encourage you to go back through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians for yourself and read through the eyes of people that lived in the first century. In two of the earliest books that Paul wrote in talking about the second coming or that day or the day of the Lord. Now remember, the book of Revelation had not been written yet. And Paul indicates in chapter 5 that he had already fully instructed them. Now, the unfortunate thing we say humanly speaking, obviously it's the providence of God, but the unfortunate thing humanly speaking is that we don't have the benefit of knowing everything that he taught them while he was with them. Don't you wish that it was there to fill in the gaps? Well, it's not. And I believe that's for a reason, so that we will not unnecessarily speculate. And we will focus on the things that are primary and not secondary. So here's what he said, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That day, now I, I, I know that there are some who, who will put immediately in there certain timetables that no doubt you have gotten from studying a particular system. And that's okay. All right? I, I, I'm just, I just want to tell you that's okay. But I think if you'll just read through First and Second Thessalonians, the obvious indication is that the second coming of the Lord the day of his arrival will not happen before two obvious events take place. Someone asked me last week at the church picnic, will Christians be here to see these two things happen? I wonder why Paul wrote these as if they would be. Just read, the simple me just read the simple meaning without overlaying anything on it. And if you take the plain meaning of the words, speaking of the return of the Lord, referring to what I see as the same event, then you're going to see that my answer, you can probably guess what my answer was to that brother when he asked that question, the answer is yes. If we're not going to be there, 
then chances are Paul wouldn't have gone to all this detail and all this trouble to tell us these two obvious signs are going to precede the day of the Lord. Descriptions that we would be able to recognize. Now let me stop again. And as I'm smiling, say that this eschatology, the study of last things, has been so divisive, almost, maybe as much as, if not more than, talking about the charismatic movement and the gift of tongues, or Calvinism versus Arminianism. I I mean, these things get, they can get very, very divisive. Here is what we basically know, and I, I hope that everyone in this room can affirm this. We believe that with the Apostles' Creed, when it says that Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father and that He will someday come to judge the living and the dead, we all get around that and we can all agree on that. Amen? Okay. And I've encouraged you before, oh, I... Please don't divide over secondary issues. You know, it's amazing to me that we see examples of how people from a variety of different views can get along. John MacArthur, whom I greatly admire, is a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture believer, okay? And he is set on the same stage shared speaking responsibilities with R.C. Sproul, who is not, now I'm going to throw out some terms, look them up at home, not now. We're not getting into the millennial views, but John MacArthur, hard and fast premillennial, I'm a premillennial, but just not a pre-tribulation. I've told you that before. But R.C. Sproul is an amillennial. And yet they've never allowed that to divide them. Now, R.C. is in heaven. So, he's figured out which view is really true. Okay? John's probably got a few more good years in him, I, I think. And uh, so, he, he will, when we get there, and, and here's the thing. If my goal, and it is, If my goal is to take this book and seek to do my best to equip you to know your identity in Christ and to live it out everywhere, then I will also do my best to prepare you for what is to come. This probably won't surprise you, but when I talk with people about being is Jesus going to come back and rapture the church before the tribulation? Now, by the way, the church is never going to go through wrath. Do you understand that? Because the wrath has been poured out on Jesus. No wrath. But tribulation? Paul said, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I, I figure it this way, and it's just very, very practical. If... John MacArthur, who is a pre-tribulation rapture guy, 
is correct. And I am wrong because I'm a post-tribulation rapture guy. The rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation rather than at the beginning. Then that's okay. I'm going to see you going up. Okay? I'll be going up with you I, because I'm trusting in Jesus, not my own works or anything like that. But if indeed you and I will go through a period of time brought about by the lawless one and the mystery of lawlessness that's going to increase in the time of great apostasy and rebellion, and we go through that, then hopefully I will have prepared you to at least steel yourself that God will get you through that. When I talk with people, and I, you know, we, we talk about these things, sometimes people will say to me, well, I, I hear what you're saying, Marty, but I hope, I hope you're wrong because I don't want to go through the tribulation. I, I think that's, that, that's not wrong. But the reality is that given enough time, you and I will go through ultimately tribulation. So, here's the key. The second coming will not happen before the great rebellion. We talked about this two weeks ago, okay? I'm not going to go back and rehearse everything we talked about. Rebellion on a widespread basis Get outside of the United States, please, and go to the, to the world. Is rebellion increasing? Yeah. Is it the great rebellion? I don't know. But there's a second part of it we talked about two weeks ago, that there is going to be from the visible church at that time a falling away. Now, that doesn't mean people just leaving the church organization, but the falling away, the apostasy could be happening within the church, a falling away from the truth, from doctrinal, theological accuracy on the part of professing Christians who really were never Christians in the first place. It's, it's rebellion in the ranks. Jesus alluded to this. Let, let me just give one more uh, commentary. This is the way I described it, a commentary by Jesus on what's going to happen before he comes back, the apostasy, the falling away. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death. You know, the, the book of Revelation talks about beheadings. I was just reading recently about in 2020, the, the Nigerian pastor who was beheaded. We, we've heard of those kinds of things. I read that just a week and a half ago, a pastor in Jamaica, a week and a half ago, was beheaded. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, he's, not just, he's talking to the church for my namesake. By the way, this indicates that the Great Commission will have virtually been fulfilled, or else how will all nations come to hate Christians so viciously? And then, 
It, it's just almost a parallel to what Paul's saying here. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Why? There could be a lot of outward reasons, but here's the bottom line. This is what I want to come back to as my primary uh, uh, application today. Why? Why is that? Why is the love and, and we're, ta- we're talking about people, perhaps, here in this church. I, I, it's hard for me to even imagine because all of you, especially the ones that I know and I've known for a, a good length of time, you, you, you love the Lord, you want to follow the Lord. But there's the indication that within every church, visible church, there are going to be people who are going to fall away. And here is the reason. Get this, not because you don't know the truth. We're all for good doctrinal teaching, but there's an element that that Paul tells us, and this is later on, I I paused when I read this. Did you notice that? Because I wanted you to get the, the, the real key. The real key is not that you, students, know what's in the Bible. That's, that's huge. And, and adults, and, and even older adults, the real key is not just that we know the Word of God, but look at this. Who are the ones who are perishing? Those people who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In order that all of them may be condemned who did not believe, obeying, believing, loving the truth are parallel but what? They had pleasure in unrighteousness. Isn't that hard to believe that somebody in the church, that that, that would happen? Is it, is it hard to believe? The New Testament has pictures of that. There was a guy named Demas who was a co-worker of Paul. He's mentioned in several different places. A co-worker, a, a, apparently a faithful co-worker, but when it came down to the end and push came to shove, look and see what happened to Demas. And why? In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, I, I don't know that he went and lived in riotous living. He could have gone and joined the church there as an apostate who became a false prophet. Why? Because he loved unrighteousness more than he loved the truth. That, that's a review of the great rebellion, the great apostasy. Well, let's go and look at the second thing that is going to happen. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. What day? The second coming of the Lord, unless the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then he goes on and clearly describes this man of lawlessness. Now, this is amazing. And let's look at it first. By the way, what's the other name that we commonly use for this man of lawlessness? Antichrist. 
Have there always been antichrists? Yep. Since the first century, I mean, they, right out of the chute, there were all kinds of antichrists. Children, it's the last hour. He's writing back then for the church then. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. And I shared with you last week, if it has been the last hour, we are in the last minutes of that last hour. So he describes him. Now, many antichrists, this guy is the culmination of all of them. Look at what it says in the next part of verse 3 in 2 Thessalonians. It talks about his perverse character. He's called the son of destruction. He's described in detail. Now, that word can also mean the son of perdition. Do you remember somebody else that was called the son of destruction, the son of perdition? Who was that? Judas. But let me just give you a description of probably what this guy is going to, to, to appear as. He will be arguably one of the most attractive, intelligent, winsome, and yet fiendish, wicked, and powerful men ever to walk the earth. He is not Satan. Why do we know that? Because we see that he's going to be energized by Satan. But he is the personification of every antichrist that has come before him. And he will, look at the description, he's going to oppose everything everything that smacks in any way of God. He's going to put himself above the law. He's going to be subject not only to any law or any lawgiver. Why? Because he sees himself as the lawgiver. And yet he's the son of destruction. That's his DNA. That means not only he will be destroyed, we're going to see that in a second, but it means that he's going to bring destruction. He, he will be the ultimate destroyer, but take heart, he will be destroyed. Verse 4, not only his character, but his God-defying activity. Listen to this. Who opposes and exalts himself against, now, this is incredible. I had never seen this before. I thought he was just going to be after Christians. Uh-uh. Against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So he not only defies and opposes God, but Every religion that worships some kind of deity, he's going to come against. It's not going to be just Christians. It'll be Muslims. It'll be Buddhists. It'll be Hindus with their millions of God. It's going to be tribal people who worship stones and rocks, and trees. It's going to be atheists. Do you know why? Because they worship themselves. And he's going to say, no, 
I alone will be the object of your worship. Now, have you ever heard a description like that before? You've never You've never encountered someone like this. He was foreshadowed in Daniel. Daniel 7, Behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. Behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, mouth speaking great things. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall, look at this, a prefiguring of what the Antichrist is going to do against the church. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. This guy sets himself up above everyone. Then we jump to the end of the book. Revelation was written. And so we see another prefiguring of him. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. It was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, it says that he will set himself up in the temple of God. Oh, let's continue on. I didn't realize this was in two slides. Authority was given him over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, everyone will worship this Antichrist except true believers. And that's why, please understand what I'm saying, all hell will break loose against followers of Christ. Temple of God, what is that? It says he's going to set himself up in the temple of God. Does that mean a rebuilding of a Jewish temple in Jerusalem? It could, but it doesn't have to. It's not clear here. And just go for yourself and do a study of how Paul uses the term, the temple of God, in his writings. Most often he uses it to describe the church, which, which could indicate that the Antichrist will set him up, himself up in the center of world religious activity and proclaim himself to be God. But... Is that right now? Is it? No. Why? Look at verses 6 through 8. There's something holding him back or someone. His present concealment and future revelation. And here's what, this is amazing. Paul says, and you know what is restraining him now. This was great for the Thessalonians. They knew, but we don't who the restrainer is. We just know that something, what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only now it changes pronouns from what to he. He who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. And commentators are all over the place. Could it be the Roman government? Could it be current government? 
that's restraining this antichrist? Could it be the church and the gospel? There are many people, the pre-tribulation people, really, really believe this because they believe that when the church is taken out of the way, that restraint will be removed. Well, all I can tell you is this, that God is sovereignly restraining that lawless one right now. But at some point, folks, at some point, it may not be in my lifetime, and it may not be in yours, but at some point, the restrainer, God's going to say, that's enough. And the restraint will be removed and he will be revealed. Now, this is interesting. That's at the first part of verse 8. What's the second part of verse 8? It almost looks like it happens just almost at the same time. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So at the height of his power, the son of destruction, now I, I, let me say it like this, is destroyed. Let's go back to Daniel. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Let me just say this, no matter how powerful the Antichrist is, <laughs> he is no match for the Lamb who is coming as a lion. Now when it says that he's going to kill him, it doesn't mean put him out of existence, does it? Because we know what's going to happen. The beast was captured. With it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. He's going to be alive when he's thrown into the lake of fire. So I, I just, I, I think Paul added that to say to the Thessalonians, look, if you are afraid of Antichrist, don't be. The worst he can do is kill you. But about as quickly as he comes to power, he will be destroyed by the coming of the Son of God. Verses 9 and 10, the first part of verse 10. His relationship to Satan and to Satan's power disease, the, uh, to deceive. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception. He is going to be filled with and energized by Satan. Uh, you, you've got to see this. I, I believe that all along Satan watched what happened in the incarnation He knew he couldn't do that. He couldn't become a man. But he wanted to mimic it as much as he could. So he will select this man and fill him and energize him to be able to perform supernatural signs and wonders. These are not fake. These are the real thing for the purpose of deceiving. And who will be deceived? Let's come to those last two verses that I told you that we're going to come back to and make our application. 
He's going to deceive those who are perishing. And how did he do it? I'm asking maybe someone in here today. How's he going to deceive you? Well, I've been in church for a long... I've been a member of Heritage. I've sat under expository preaching. He's going to deceive you because you didn't love the truth. Not that you didn't know the truth, but you didn't love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends on them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, number one, they're, they're perishing because they're already Satan's children. John 8, you're of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. The unsaved perish. Not because they didn't hear or even know or even understand the truth, but because they didn't love the truth. Let me ask you to turn, and I don't have this on the slide, so turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This is a picture of the salvation that God gives. Why do you think Paul closed out his comments on the the time of great apostasy and rebellion and the lawless one and the deception with not loving the truth? Because perhaps there were people that were a part of the church just like Demas who probably became a part of the church And Paul knew that they needed to be lovingly challenged. Now hear me, one thing that I will never try to do is to talk you out of the salvation that God has worked in your life. I can't even if I wanted to. Because we believe in the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. Whom God saves, He keeps But could it be that in any church, good churches, Bible-teaching churches, people love unrighteousness, even in the church, more than they love the truth? This is not a salvation by law, salvation by grace. And that's why I love what Paul says to Titus in chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that grace do? Trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age 
And then he tacks this on, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for sinners. And I'm at the top of the heap. And we understand that God has created us to know Him and to glorify Him, but we have rejected that. We have turned away. You see, the basic definition of sin is lawlessness. It's playing God and fighting God. And yet God the Father did something so wonderful. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die and pay the penalty, to die in the place of, as an atoning sacrifice, the worst of sinners. But when a, please hear this, when a person becomes a Christian, it is not a business transaction. If you do this, then God will give you that. It is being born again. A, a, a whole new bent to your life. Not that you will perfectly do this, but you will desire to follow after the things of God. In other words, you will love the truth and not just know the truth. Is that your testimony? Not because of works that you have done, but your trust in Jesus Christ as your sufficient and only Savior, and yet a trust in Him to continue to help you put away unrighteousness and to love truth? Is that your testimony today? I pray that it is. And if it is not, then before we leave this campus, please seek me out. Seek one of our pastors or one of our elders out. Your Sunday school teacher, your adult Bible fellowship leader, Talk with that person about what it really means to know Jesus Christ and to love the truth. Would you do that? Father, I praise you and thank you that your words are given to us, not just to know, but to, to love. And Father, I pray that every person in this room, I look around and I see faces of people that I know and that I love, and I pray, oh God, that in each heart that is the reality, a transformation, not a business transaction, but the reality of a born-again experience, a personal relationship 
with you, the living God, because that person has believed in Jesus Christ to save from sins and to transform his or her life. Father, I do pray, as I said a few moments ago, that if there is even one today who has a question about that, perhaps they know that they have not loved the truth, and it's not just a fleeting thing, it's not just a struggle with sin kind of thing, it's a long-term thing. They have not loved the truth, maybe ever. They've loved unrighteousness. Well, God, I pray that today there would be a quickening that person would seek out someone who could share the gospel with him or with her. So thank you, Lord, that we can respond to your word. It's always there for us to know and to follow. And I pray that we would do that today, even today, right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to sing once again.